Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Lessons in Leadership. All right, so last week, if you were with us, we saw that the city of Ephesus was really in a state of complete confusion. And the reason why is because a guy named Paul came to town. And so Paul came, he set up his ministry, he started to teach the word of God. And so before Paul came, you remember the citizens of Ephesus, they were worshiping what they called the great goddess Artemis. So they'd go down to her temple, they'd worship her, they'd buy the little silver shrines of Artemis. Um, and I showed you all the pictures last week of the ruins um, that archaeologists have uncovered from this time period. And so Paul comes to town, he teaches the word of God, and, and at least three things happen. Right, Many people turn to Christ in repentance and faith, and then when the Holy Spirit comes in, he starts to convict them, and they're no longer going down to the temple of Artemis. They're no longer wor worshiping her. They're no longer buying the little silver shrines of Artemis that Demetrius, the silversmith, had been making. And so when Demetrius saw that his sales were plummeting, he got angry. You remember this? And he called all the silversmiths and craftsmen around Ephesus and he got them all in a room, got them all riled up to oppose the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And the next thing you know, again, all chaos ensues. And the amphitheater in Ephesus fills up, right? 25,000 or so people. And you saw the pictures of the ruins of that amphitheater that's still there today uh, over there in Western Turkey. And it fills up and everybody begins to shout for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the local government in Ephesus, they're concerned because they think a riot's gonna break out. So they push in the mayor, and the mayor goes in and he addresses everybody and basically tells them, hey, don't do anything rash unless you want Roman soldiers coming in here. If you want the iron fist of Rome to come down on our city and for our city to lose its privileges, you know, keep doing what you're doing, but I advise you not to. And, and uh, that was enough for the crowd to disperse and the uproar to cease, all right? So that was last week, Acts 19. And so today we're picking up in chapter 20, verse one. So if you're visiting with us, this is what we do 90 or so, 5% of the time. We go verse by verse through God's word. And so because we finished Acts 19, verse 41, today we're starting in Acts 20, verse one. So if you're looking at that verse, please say amen. amen. So helpful if you just follow along, right? as we exegete the text. So after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. No doubt Paul's in a hidden location because there's lots of craftsmen who wanna kill him. And so Paul sends for the disciples, and I love this about Paul, he's such an optimist. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And so because of the near riot, Paul knows this city's too dangerous for me to remain in. And so he says farewell to his friends. He gets on a boat, crosses the Aegean, and he heads on up to Macedonia or northern Greece. Verse two. And when he had gone through those regions, the regions of Macedonia, and had given them, that's the churches that he had already planted, had given them much encouragement. There he goes again, encouraging people. It says that he came to Greece, okay? So now he goes down south to Achaia or southern Greece. And then verse three says, there, okay, so there in Greece, he spent how many months? Three months, all right? And so Paul gets on a boat, goes across the Aegean, goes up to northern Macedonia or Macedonia. He begins to go from church to church, encouraging people like you in the faith. Then he heads on south and he stays, scholars believe, in the city of Corinth for three months. And it's in Corinth that something really special happens. And maybe you wanna write, if you don't mind marking your Bibles next to verse three, write the word Romans. Because it's in Corinth, right here in verse three, that the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write a masterpiece on the Christian faith, and that is his letter to the Romans. And so the Holy Spirit, in case you didn't know, used Romans in the life of a man who lived in the 16th century. 
Have you ever heard of Martin Luther? And so the Holy Spirit uses Romans, the letter that Paul's writing right now in verse three as he's spending three months in Corinth. The Holy Spirit uses Romans to give a spiritual awakening to a man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther understands and he accepts the fact that we're justified, we're declared righteous by faith in Christ alone. And what happens in Martin Luther's life is he experiences a spiritual awakening and that leads to, as you all know, the Protestant Reformation. 200 years later, after Martin Luther in the 16th century wrote a commentary on Romans, including an introduction, 200 years later in the 18th century, there's another guy. Have you ever heard of John Wesley? John Wesley's sitting in in London and he's an Anglican priest. And he's in a Bible study. He didn't want to go, but he went to a Bible study. And they're reading through the introduction to Romans by Martin Luther, written 200 years prior. And the same thing happens to this Anglican priest, John Wesley. He has a spiritual awakening. He says that my heart was, was unusually warmed and filled. Wow. Romans. It's the reason that as the Holy Spirit takes Romans and uses it in people's lives, it's the reason that millions and millions of people have had a spiritual awakening for the last 2,000 years. I'd encourage for some of you groups who are looking for something to do, go through Romans. I encourage some of you guys who are having your devotions every day, you should be having your devotions every day and you're not sure where to go, study Romans. I taught through it four years ago. I think you can find it on Vimeo if you dig deep enough or just go over to Blue Letter Bible and use David Guzik. But man, go through Romans. Maybe God will give you in 2020 a spiritual awakening. Now let me ask you a question. Paul's in Corinth for three months. He's writing Romans. Do you think Satan is happy? (laughs) Not at all. All right, so it's time now, once again, for Satan to make his move on the chessboard of Acts. All right, so look at verse three again. It says, there Paul spent three months, and when, here we go, a plot was made against him by the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, those who rejected that Jesus is Messiah. As he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so God moved on the chessboard of Acts by using Paul to write the amazing uh, masterpiece on the Christian faith called Romans. And then Satan counter moves by inspiring certain depraved men to try to take out Paul, murder Paul, on a boat that's heading towards Syria. And so what happens is, um, at least once a year, Jews from all over the known world at the time, they would make their way over to Jerusalem for Passover and Paul wanted to do that. And so the, the, the enemy of our souls inspires these certain men, hey, kill Paul while, you're, while he's on the boat and throw his body overboard. But how many of you know that no weapon formed against us shall prosper as long as we're walking with the Lord? Ladies and gentlemen, here's what you need to know. Maybe some of you are new to the Bible and you, you didn't know this. What you need to know is that the devil is like a roaring lion and he's prowling around seeking whom he may devour. And if you know and love Jesus Christ, he wants to devour you. I just thought I'd encourage you this Sunday morning (laughs) with that good news, right? But no, you have an enemy. He's, He's called Satan. His name means adversary. You ever wonder why sometimes life's so hard? Because we have this adversary who's trying to stop us from following Jesus Christ. But listen, if we'll just stay close to the good shepherd, it's gonna be okay. When the sheep stays close to the good shepherd, the wolf's not going anywhere near the sheep. It's when the sheep wanders away that that sheep becomes prey. So I wanna encourage you, man, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Just stay close to the good shepherd. And because Paul stayed close to the good shepherd, the Holy Spirit said, "Uh uh-uh, don't get on that boat. (laughs) And what the Lord did is he led him away from the boat that could have ended in his demise, and he sent Paul back up through Macedonia. And so because there's safety in numbers, the Lord right now puts a bunch of friends around Paul and um, let's see what his friends, um, let's see their names. And I'm, I'm, I'm gonna mispronounce their names because I am not Greek. I am just an American born in Texas, all right? So look at verse four. 
Here's the friends that God puts around Paul, kind of his security detail, if you will. Uh, Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, I think is his dad's name, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and oh, there's Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were, look at this, look at verse uh, uh, five, these went on ahead and were waiting for, what's the word? Us at Troas, verse six, but, what's the word? We, I'm gonna see if you guys do any better than the previous two gatherings. Who, please help me out. Who wrote the book of Acts? One, two, three, four, five. Okay, you beat the rest of the services, all right. Yeah, Luke, everybody say Luke, okay. Luke wrote this book, us, we, verse six, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and uh, in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days, okay? So Paul's friends, get the, get, get the idea here, Paul's friends know that these Jews, unbelieving Jews, were trying to take them out, and so they, they, they put themselves around Paul, and they, they go from Corinth all the way back up to, to Macedonia, to Philippi. Apparently, once these guys knew the apostle was safe, they got on a boat and went on over the Aegean, northern Aegean, back to Troas, the, uh, Asia Minor, and they left Paul with Luke in Philippi. So how do we know that Luke has rejoined Paul? Because of the first person plural pronouns, we and us, in verse six. Okay, so what does all this look like on a map? Let's get our geographical bearings. So Paul's in Ephesus, better part of three years, and um, there's this big riot, and so he leaves Ephesus. So bottom right quadrant of your screen, if you see the city of Ephesus, say amen. Gets on the boat, heads across the Aegean Sea, up into Macedonia, where he goes from church to church that he has already planted, and he's encouraging believers like you. And then he heads all the way south to Corinth, bottom left part of your screen. If you see that city, say amen. And that's where the Holy Spirit leads him to write the masterpiece, the book of Romans. Then he heads back up with a group of friends all the way up back into Macedonia because he doesn't want to get on a boat and get killed. And he goes all the way back north to Philippi. Friends see that he's okay. They go ahead and cross back over to Troas and Asia Minor. Paul is reunited with Luke in Philippi. And it's there that they celebrate um, uh, the Feast of Passover. And then after that, then they get on a boat. Luke and Paul get on a boat and they cross the northern Aegean Sea and they meet up with their friends again in Troas. By the way, quick side note. It's been estimated that the Apostle Paul traveled over 10,000 miles. Now that's obviously, right, way before the invention of planes, trains, and automobiles. And this guy, man, he travels over 10,000 miles for Christ. This is what you call a true leader. Now, he's in Troas with, with Luke, and then something shocking happens. All right, we're gonna pick it up now in verse seven. So in verse seven it says, on the first day of the week, Okay, so what day are we talking about here? Sunday. Sunday. Okay, it's Sunday in your Bible. On the first day of the week, when we, Luke's still with him, were gathered together, look at this, to break bread. Now this is no doubt the agape feasts that were famous in the first century among the Christian community. They, the Christians would get together, they'd have a big potluck, and then it would end in the Lord's Supper. So when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, this is the Christian community in Troas, intending to depart on the next day, but look at this at the end of verse seven. It says, and he prolonged his speech until what? Midnight. Please don't ever accuse me of being long-winded. <laughs> Midnight. It's 11.46 a.m. Anybody wanna stay for 12 hours? Okay, so midnight, verse eight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, all right? So imagine the scene, the church of Troas gathers together on a Sunday in order to hear the Apostle Paul. Now we know that this is a Sunday evening gathering. 
And the reason I know that is because in that day, in that culture, Sunday was a regular work day. Not like America where everybody's off or most people are off on Sunday. No, people worked on Sunday. And so they worked all day and then they got together as the Christian community. They had a big potluck. It ended in the Lord's Supper. Paul starts to teach and teach and teach and teach all the way until midnight. And because it's dark outside, there's lots of oil lamps all in this upper room, three stories up, all these oil lamps are burning, which creates a very serene and peaceful environment. And the environment is so peaceful that there's a certain young man, he starts to get pretty sleepy here. All right, so look at verse nine now, verse nine. It said, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, Okay, he's probably getting tired and he wants some fresh air, so he goes up and sits on the window, the windowsill. And by the way, um, it says a young man named Eutychus. I was reading a, a Chuck Swindoll commentary this week, and he said, I think, I think he said the Greek word is 10 to 18 years old. So just get an idea of how old Eutychus was. So he's sitting at the window, and look at this. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Paul's going on past midnight. And being overcome by sleep. Can anybody relate to this? Don't get any ideas in this service, all right? <laughs> I'm watching you. All right, I'm kidding. And being overcome by sleep, look at this, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, how do you know this kid was dead and not unconscious? Who wrote the book of Acts? Everybody tell me. Luke, who was not just a historian, he was a doctor. And when a doctor says you're dead, you're dead, right? This guy's dead. Verse 10, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And so after Eutychus fell three stories to his death, I love this, Paul stops preaching and he runs downstairs. And by the way, that's what leaders do. Leaders do not sit around and wait for other people to act. When, there's time, when it's time to act, leaders get up and they get to it. And I just wanna say, I'm so thankful that in this local church, we got a lot of leaders. And they don't just sit back, they get up and they're active in their faith and they're active in their local church. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And so Paul gets up, he runs downstairs, he goes to the corpse of this young man. He lifts it up and no doubt he's praying for a miracle. And ladies and gentlemen, the miracle came. And so just like um, God used Elijah, remember him? In the Old Testament. Some of you never read the Old Testament. You gotta get into the Old Testament. It'll, it'll, it really will help you understand the New Testament even better. And so just like God used Elijah as a vessel of his power uh, to raise the, the widow's son in 1 Kings chapter 17, and just like God used Elisha as a vessel of his power to raise the Shunammite son in 2 Kings chapter 4, so now God is using the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 20 as a vessel of his power to raise this young man Eutychus from the dead. Eutychus is alive. Everybody is rejoicing. They're so happy. He's not dead. He's alive, right? Praise the Lord. Now, it's well after midnight, you would think everybody is like, okay, see you later, time to go home, we gotta work the next day. You'd think that was what they would do, but no. Paul's not done teaching yet. And so they all go back up, three flights of stairs, back to the upper room. Look at verse 11 now, verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, so apparently Paul's getting the midnight munchies, he gets up, goes over, gets some food, it says that he had eaten and he conversed with them a long while. <laughs> Until what? Daybreak. Daybreak. The sun's coming up. He's like, okay. And so departed. Verse 12, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. It's probably not every day that the Christians in Troas had an apostle in their midst. And that's why, you know, we see what's going on here in the Bible. Man, they stayed, they hung out with Paul all night long as he taught them the word of God. 
And I'm sure it wasn't a formal teaching like you're receiving right now. I'm sure it was more of an, um, um, not a formal, but informal environment where they're, they're, he's teaching and they're, then they're asking questions and they're like, hey, I'm hungry. And they go over and have some more food, right? And so it's that kind of environment all the way until sun comes up and they're like, I gotta go to work. And so before we move on, let me just say, I really admire these people right here in Troas, these Christians and their hunger for the word of God. Amen. This is inspiring to me. Yesterday I went for a quick run and I was starving to death. I mean, I was so hungry, I could not wait to get home. As I was running, I kept thinking, lunch, 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 lunch. That was my motivation to keep going. And then um, I got home and I just, just began to eat like crazy. And I thought later, I thought, what if everybody at Calvary, myself included, what if all of us had a hunger for God's word as much as I hungered for food yesterday? You know, what would happen in this church if it wasn't churchianity, but it was Christianity. And we hungered for God's word and we hungered to grow spiritually in our faith. And remember from two weeks ago, that's not the last step, but we grow spiritually in our faith to the point where we can start discipling, helping, encouraging other people. I think that's what's happening in Troas and it really is a blessing. Now we pick it up in verse 13, verse 13. But going on ahead, Luke tells us, going on ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. In other words, they're in Asos, and everybody's like, Paul, get on the boat. He's like, no, 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 you guys go ahead and sail around the Cape, um, from Troas to Asos, I'm gonna walk from Troas to Asos. Verse 14, and when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, the next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that, um, we went to Miletus. Verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, remember Ephesus is where he spent better part of three years, where Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost, all right? So let's look at our map again so you guys understand what's going on here. So while his friends got on a boat up in Troas, top left part of your screen, and sailed around the Cape to Asos, Paul's like, no, I'm gonna walk. And he walks the 20 miles from Troas to Asos, why? The Bible doesn't say. Maybe he needed exercise. I think he wanted to spend some time with the Lord alone. And by the way, in our busy culture, can I encourage you guys to go on prayer walks every once in a while? You, you may think, I'm too busy, Mike. You don't understand my schedule. Just do it. Get away from work. Get away from your family. Um, get away from everything. Just you and the Lord out there walking around Oxbow or wherever it is, a park or a lake, and just go for a prayer walk. And get, by the way, wasn't yesterday a beautiful day? And just go walk under God's creation and thank him for the sky and the clouds and the sun, right? And the cool air and the trees and the flowers and the birds. I love blue jays and cardinals. And some of you guys think, well, he's being silly right now. No, I'm really not. Because here, here's what I know. When you get outside and, and, and you see all, all this design, you begin to know there's a designer you see all this order, you know there's someone who designed all this, who created all this, and it's just you and your creator and you can fellowship with him and have this thankful heart. The fact that he's the creator. Ladies and gentlemen, most of our world thinks that we evolved from lower life forms. Give me a break. God created us. And he created everything you see around us. And when we get out there and we see that, we begin to connect with him. And so I think this is what Paul's doing. I'm gonna go walk. And he, he goes for a walk. He spends time with the Lord. And then when he arrives in Asos, okay, so he's there in Asos now. Hey, Luke, hey, guys. They all get on a boat. They go down to Lesbos, to Mytilene, and then down to the island of Chios, then down to the island of Samos. They sail past Ephesus. They go all the way down to Miletus. And so bottom center of your screen, if you see uh, Miletus, just say amen so I know you're there. 
And uh, the reason he passes by Ephesus is because there's so many people in Ephesus that know him. He knows, I, I'm never gonna make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost, and so I don't have time. And, and so he doesn't have time to speak to all the believers, but he does want to talk to the elders. And so now we're picking it up in verse 17. It says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, if I could have your attention, please, because right here, right now, this is the crux of the chapter. This is the crux of the chapter for the rest of this message and for all of the message next week. And so I want, I want to kind of paint the picture so you understand what's happening here. Paul is in Miletus. He calls for the Ephesian elders to come down so that he can share a very important message with them. Now, he had spent two to three years with these men who are coming down the 30 miles from Ephesus to Miletus. He spent two to three years with them, right? Leading them to Christ, discipling them, mentoring them, pouring truth into their lives. And now, what does he want to do? He wants to further encourage them and further equip them. And so he watched their lives. And when, when, when they had proven themselves that they were growing in the Lord and they were ready and the Holy Spirit was moving and working, he laid his hands on them and he had appointed them as elders. But now in verses 18 through 35, he wants to further encourage, further equip these men in their leadership roles. Paul was one of the greatest leaders this world has ever seen. And what we're gonna see today and next week from verses 18 to 35, we're gonna see some of the qualities that made Paul such an exceptional leader. And so today we're only gonna have time to get through verse 21 because I'm not allowed, to, I'm, not, I'm not gonna go to midnight, okay? Just verse 21 today. Next week, part two of the message and we'll finish the chapter. But let me encourage you. Even though this was a message that was given to leaders 2,000 years ago, ladies and gentlemen, these truths that we're gonna dig out from this section of scripture, one of the most richest sections in Acts, these truths that we're gonna dig out are timeless. And they can be applied to all of our lives. You know why? Because all of us are called to be leaders at some level or another. God's called you to be a leader. Those of you watching on Facebook, He's called you to be a leader. Those listening on the podcast, he's called you to be a leader. Let's find out from the best how to do this thing called leadership. Verse 18, and when they came to him, okay, so they made the 30-mile trip from Ephesus to Miletus. When they came to Paul, he said to them, you yourselves know how I, and if you don't mind marking your Bibles, underline the word lived, so you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So they all come, they enter a room. Paul says, hey guys, how's it going? And his, this is how he starts. He goes, you guys all know, you saw my life for three years. You know how I lived. Now it's very important that you understand that Paul began this address not by first reminding them of what he had taught. He starts this address by first reminding them how he lived. And the reason that's important is because if we talk the talk without walking the walk, we are just windbags. And that leads you to your first leadership lesson. If you're taking notes, you wanna engage in the message, I, we, we, we put cards on your seats so you could do that. Effective Christian leaders don't just talk it, they walk it. Effective Christian leaders don't just talk it, they walk it. So if we only talk about Christianity without walking it out, here's what I know, people are not gonna listen to us. But if our walk is back, if our talk is backed up with our walk, then we have a lot better chance of people hearing us. And here's why people don't want to listen to people who don't walk it out. Because nobody wants to listen to a hypocrite. In fact, I would submit to you that listening to a hypocrite is quite annoying. What does Zonervan say about all this? How, do, how does he define hypocrisy? Look at this. To act a part in a play. Play acting. 
with special reference to religion. So a hypocrite means a play actor, someone who plays a part. They're not being genuine. They're being somebody else. And so if somebody comes to church with a big smile and their Bible under their arm, and they begin to share these religious phrases and they don't come from the heart, you know, whatever it is, like, praise the Lord, how you doing, brother? Praying for your sister, all right, yeah, whatever it is. <laughs> and then during the week, you know, they belittle their spouse, they yell at their kids, they tell dirty jokes at work, they use profanity, they get plastered on Friday night, whatever it is. You, you, you know what those people are doing? They're driving people away from Christ. They're driving people away from his church and they're being very annoying. I really liked what Vince Miller um, said a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago when he was here. And by the way, what's the number one excuse people give for not going to church? You guys, you guys know this, right? Why do, why, what's the number one reason people say, I'm, I don't go to church? There's too many, what? hypocrites. So Vince Miller was here three or four weeks ago, whatever it was, and, and he said that when he was a teenager, he moved in with his grandpa. For whatever reason, um, his mom gave permission, and so he moves in with his grandpa. His grandpa's a Christian, and his grandpa doesn't just talk it. His grandpa walks it, and that made a big impact on Vince Miller's life, and it's the reason that he's doing what he's doing now, serving the Lord. And one of the statements that his grandpa gave him that really impacted his life went something like this. Vince told all of his guys who were there that Saturday morning that his grandpa sat him down. He said, Vince, many people will say that the church is filled with hypocrites. They're right. But here's what you need to know, son, that the church was not built on the backs of hypocrites. It was built on the rock of Jesus Christ. And so that... And that we should thank God for that, right? Now listen, listen, that impacted his life in a radical way. Why? Because he wasn't just hearing a bunch of religious talk from some guy. He was observing his life 24-7, and then he all of a sudden knew that, hey, I'm not going to use hypocrites as an excuse to, to skip out on Christ's bride, the church, and serve the Lord. And so here, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you have a problem with all the hypocrites in the church then what you need to do is you need to get your eyes off of the hypocrites and get your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. right? Because the church is built on him, not people. And he's the real deal. Have you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? He's the real deal. He called out the hypocrites of his day. And so let Christ's love, his grace, his authenticity be that catalyst that propels you to be a genuine follower of Christ and not just another hypocrite. All right, so look at verse 18 now. Paul says, I lived among you. You saw my life for three years from the time I set foot in Asia. Verse 19, he says, serving the Lord with all, you may want to underline the word, humility. Humility. And with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And so Paul reminds all these leaders in the church that he served the Lord with all humility. And that leads you to your second leadership uh, lesson. Number two is that effective Christian leaders are humble. They're humble. Now I know this is basic, but, but, but listen, we're exegeting the text and this is Paul's message on leadership. And, and we're learning from the best, the Apostle Paul. And he has to start with just some basic stuff. In other words, guys, stop being fake, be real. That's step number one if you want to be a real leader. And then number two, hey, get over yourself and be humble. Proverbs 6.16, Solomon tells us there's seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. You guys remember this text? Proverbs 6 says there's six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. And do you know what's number one on the list? God says... Number one on the list of things that I hate are haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. In other words, pride. I think it's number one on his list because that's the sin that got Lucifer the, the boot out of heaven. Haughty eyes. Pride. And so 
God hates it when arrogant people look down their noses at others, right? Belittling, criticizing, you know, making other people feel stupid. God says, I hate that. And the reason God hates it is because, again, you know, what people do is, 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 is they puff themselves up and they deceive themselves. Do you know why arrogant people like to belittle other people and talk down to other people? Because it makes them feel good about themselves. The basis of pride is insecurity. They're not secure in themselves. And so what do they do? They fault find, they criticize, they talk down to, they make other people feel stupid. Because if I can convince myself that I'm up here, that means that you're down here. And so I feel pretty good about myself. And it's pride. All right, so what's the remedy of pride? How do you fix that? The remedy of pride is stop comparing yourself to fallen human people. Because when you compare yourself to fallen human people, you kind of look pretty good sometimes, right? So stop comparing yourself to fallen human beings and start comparing yourself to the Lord. And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, please hear me, this is why it's so important that Christians get into God's presence on a regular basis. Because when we get into God's, really, God's real presence, when we get into his presence on a regular basis, it's so hard to be prideful. Do you guys remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah has this vision. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he said that there was these seraphim, this special uh, order of angelic beings, and they were flying around the throne, and each seraphim had six wings. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 6 that with two, they covered their face, and two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. You know why they were covering their face, by the way? Because of the majestic glory of an uncreated holy God. And these angels are crying out to one another. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And as they're crying out, it says that the door frames are shaking and smoke is filling the house. By the way, I can't wait to get to heaven. Now, when Isaiah saw this, he has this vision. It's called the beatific vision, by the way. And when Isaiah sees God, how did he respond? You know, did he, he walk up to the Lord on the throne and say, hey, what up, bruh? <laughs> right? Or did he stick out his chest all religious and say, have you seen my powerful ministry on the earth? No, no, no. This is how Isaiah responded. Look at this. Woe is me. <laughs> By the way, if you've ever been in God's presence and not been afraid, you haven't been in God's presence. Now, I'm not talking about fear cowering like he's gonna kill you. I'm talking about deep reverential respect for the uncreated God. He says, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so this is what I see in this passage. What I see is that no one can have a divine encounter with the King of kings and Lord of lords and remain prideful. You just can't do that, why? Because when you see God for who he really is, then you see immediately yourself for who you really are. And who are we really? We are sinners in need of a savior. Now this is why, by the way, I fear for some of you, because some of you are still believing this nonsense that, that you're good enough to make it to heaven on your own, and that I, I, I talked to some of you guys. How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, pastor, I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. Eh, wrong answer. That's the wrong answer. Do you really think that you're gonna strut up in heaven and say, God, all right, weigh out my good and my bad and the good outweighs the bad. And so God's gonna say, wow, you're such a godly man. Come on in here. No, that's not gonna happen. When you and I get into heaven, ladies and gentlemen, unless we have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, we are gonna be crispy critters, I'm telling you. You need Jesus 
Christ, it's time for you to start looking at Christ, hanging on the cross, and know that he absorbed the wrath of God in your place and rose again three days later so that you could be forgiven of all of your sins and you need to stop trying and you need to start trusting that my sins are forgiven because of Christ and Christ alone. And then your heart, like John Wesley's heart, will be warmly and strangely warmed and filled. That is what's called conversion, ladies and gentlemen. Get over yourself and realize that you're a sinner in desperate need of a savior and then cry out to God and he'll cleanse you in the blood of the lamb and then when you die, he'll clothe you with this immortal, eternal, glorified body, resurrected body and then you'll be able to have the beatific vision. And you know what's gonna happen then? You're gonna fall on your knees and cry with the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You see, this is what happened to Paul on earth. You remember this 11 chapters ago? Paul's on his high horse, right? Defender of Judaism, ready to imprison anybody who follows Jesus. He's all that, haughty eyes. The next thing you know, he's on the dirt, in the dirt, on the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? As this bright light shines around him. I am Jesus. Like I told you 11 chapters ago, I think the Lord's foot was on his neck. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks, isn't it? And when Paul later gives his testimony in Acts 22, he's like, what should I do, Lord? What happened to Paul? His haughty eyes, his pride melted away because he got in the presence of Almighty God. And one of the most proud, the pr I would say probably one of the proudest men ever in history. And I don't mean that in a positive way, like the few, the proud, the Marines. I'm not talking about that definition. I'm talking about haughty eyes, arrogant, I'm better than other people pride. One of the most um, prideful men in all of history becomes one of the humblest men in all of history. And we know that God used him in a big way, didn't he, did he not in the book of Acts? And so God can't use you if you're pride, prideful. He'll put you on the shelf if you're prideful. You gotta swallow your pride. And the way you do that is you stop comparing yourself with fallen people, start comparing yourself with the Lord. Verse 18, almost done. Paul says, guys, you know how I lived among you. He says in verse 19, I serve the Lord with all humility. And now he says in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So Paul refuses to shrink away from sharing the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So your third leadership lesson, if you're taking notes, is simply this. Effective Christian leaders ignore their fears and they speak the truth in love. Ignore your fear, because you're always gonna be afraid. I'm always gonna be afraid. We have to ignore our fears and we have to speak the truth in love. In other words, Paul didn't tell people just what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. Now, there's lots of vegetables that quite frankly, if I'm being honest with you, I hate them. <laughs> Spinach, no way. Asparagus, never in a million years. Brussels sprouts, Brussels sprouts, the weed of Satan. No way. Just give me a chopped salad with some, some tomatoes and ranch and, and that's my vegetables, right? <laughs> the worst one of all, eggplant. <laughs> Which by the way, I heard is not a vegetable, it's a fruit, okay? So learn something every day. Now, now growing up, my mom, you need to know, my mom is an amazing cook and growing up, she, she went all out. She made these amazing like five course dinners for me and my brothers and my dad when we grew up. I so appreciate that. Her lasagna is to die for. 
But every once in a while, my mom made fried eggplant. And it wasn't my mom's cooking. It's eggplant. I just can't get it down. I don't know if it's a texture thing or whatever. And so she'd serve fried eggplant every once in a while. And, you know, the rest of the family would eat. And, and we had a rule back then. I don't even think these rules exist anymore. But that, you, you don't get up until you finish your dinner, son. <laughs> and so they're watching Happy Days in Laverne and Shirley or whatever. And I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to eat eggplant. And I can't. But thank God for our dog, Susie. <laughs> Susie. Because when mom and dad aren't looking, right, Susie's getting that eggplant. <laughs> now, you need to know, Susie died at an early age, all right? So, uh, no, I'm kidding. We gave her some of, of mom's lasagna, and she instantly revived or whatever. But, but man, I, I, I hate some vegetables. I can't get it down. So even though some vegetables are nasty, everybody knows they're all part of a healthy diet, right? All right, so what's your point, Pastor? My point is this. We need to give vegetables to our kids whether they like them or not. And in the same way, we need to speak the truth in love whether people like it or not. And we need to eat, yes, me too. We need to eat vegetables whether we like them or not. Just give me that chopped salad. And we need to accept hard truth, whether we like it or not. See, it's all part of growing as a leader. Proverbs says this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. People say, oh, the most loving thing to, to be is just tolerant and let people do whatever evil they wanna do and we're just gonna be tolerant and that's love. That's not love. Give me a break. Well, look at God's word. Open Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the what of a friend? The wounds of a friend. And so if you see a friend who needs correction, the most loving thing you can do is go to that person privately and in humility and love, correct the person. And if they see you and you need correction and they correct you, don't get all haughty and upset and offended and leave church and you know, for, you're gone. No, don't do that. Well, what did we just talk about? The last point, humility. Why? Because we need correction so we can continue to grow. Ladies and gentlemen, what coach doesn't correct his or her team? No, every coach who's worth his, his or her salt corrects their team, why? So they can be better players, so they can win. And this is what God does for us. God corrects us, he chastises us, he disciplines us. It says in Hebrews um, chapter 12, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor, be, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Or whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son he receives. And so when God corrects me, here's what I know. He does it because he loves me and he does it because he wants me to be better. And when certain friends correct me, and I've got two guys right now on my board of directors, and I know what I'm talking about right now, and they correct me. You know what I know about them? Because they've been with me for years. I know they love me, and I know they're doing it to make me better. A better husband, a better father, a better pastor. And so I hope that you'll humble yourself and begin to give correction and begin to receive correction. And let's finish it up. In verse 21, Paul says to these men, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what did Paul do as a good leader? He always pointed people, not to himself, he pointed people to Jesus. Here's your last leadership lesson. Effective Christian leaders point people to Christ. They point people to Christ. Now notice, stay with me to the end here, okay? Notice he says, repentance towards God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so what's the word repentance mean? Metanoia in the Greek, it means to think differently or change your mind. That's, that's literally what the Bible means when it says repent. Change your mind. Okay, so here's what I'm wondering. 
before I close in prayer today, here's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if everybody in this room, watching on Facebook, listening on the podcast, I'm wondering if you've changed your mind about three things. If you changed your mind about sin, if you've changed your mind about self, and if you changed your mind about the Savior. What's repentance? Change your mind. You gotta change your mind about sin. In other words, God's not some big Santa Claus in the sky who winks his sin. That's not our God. God is the uncreated holy God, he's just, and he says the wages of sin is death. That's physical death, spiritual death. Change your mind about that. Come to the place where you believe God's truth that the penalty of sin is death. Then change your mind about yourself. What do you mean? Stop thinking you can save yourself. I'm trying harder, pastor. I hope I get there someday. Change your mind about that. You and I, we can't save ourselves. We're sinners in need of a savior. And then finally, change your mind about the savior. Listen to this. Jesus Christ is the only one who can forgive you, save you, and take you to heaven. All other religious systems, I'm not talking about Christian denominations right now, I'm talking about world religions. All other religious systems lead to destruction. Most of them are works-based. They ignore Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So change your mind about Jesus and know that he's the only one who can save you. Repent and believe. And if you'll do that, he'll give you eternal life. Look at what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And I hope to see you on the other side. Not because you made it because you and I are so good, but because we trusted Jesus. Amen.